0: I have found Outbeat News In-Depth for you.
1: Good evening and welcome to Outbeat News In-Depth. I'm Greg Moralia. It was 50 years ago this summer when President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Tonight we have the honor of hosting two champions for civil rights, straight allies, who were seen years ago as very unlikely partners, but who today are recognized as the powerful and dynamic legal team that brought California's Proposition 8 all the way to the Supreme Court. David Boyce and Ted Olson are here with us tonight to share their story, experience, and ideas about how marriage equality has become the civil rights issue of our time. All of this is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, August 24th, 2014.
0: I have found Outbeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond.
1: For the first time, a federal U.S. judge has ruled that a persecution of LGBT people is a crime against humanity. U.S. District Judge Michael Ponzer in Springfield, Massachusetts said, quote, widespread systematic persecution of LGBT people constitutes a crime against humanity that unquestionably violates international norms. The history and current existence of discrimination against LGBT people is precisely what qualifies them as a distinct targeted group eligible for protection under international law. The fact that a group continues to be vulnerable to widespread systematic persecution in some parts of the world simply cannot shield one who commits a crime against humanity from liability. This sets a precedent ensuring the fundamental human rights of LGBT people are protected under international law, and it comes as Uganda's LGBTI filed a lawsuit against prominent US anti-gay extremist Scott Lively. The lawsuit states Lively collaborated with key Ugandan government officials and religious leaders that allegedly resulted in the introduction of the Kill the Gays Bill. As the founder of Abiding Truth Ministries, Lively has made a career of stirring up anti-gay feelings in the US and across the world. He co-authored The Pink Swastika which suggests homosexuals were the truth inventors of Nazism and the guiding force behind many Nazi atrocities. And finally, the realm of ghosts, everything you've ever wanted to know about ghosts but were too afraid to ask, will happen this coming Friday, August 29th from 6 to 7.30 p.m. at Food for Thought Antiques in Sebastopol. This is the event's fourth and final year. Popular local psychic Stephen Osborne will lecture and conduct his Psychic Spiriting, followed by an open question and answer session in which the audience is encouraged to bring any questions and concerns. Proceeds from the event benefit food for thought. Tickets are $20, and you can learn more at 707-887-1647. Now here's your calendar events for the coming week. On Monday, August 25th at 7 p.m., the Parents of Transgender Youth Support Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street in Santa Rosa. And on Tuesday, August 29th at 7.30 p.m., the Trans Group will meet at the Positive Images Center, 312 Chin Street. And on Wednesday, August 27th at 5 p.m., the Spectrum LGBT Center will host its bi-monthly youth support group meeting, 30 North San Pedro Road in San Rafael. For more information about local LGBT events happening here in the North Bay, go to GaySonoma.com. And if you have news or an event you'd like to share with our listeners, tell us about it by going to our own website at OutBeatNews.com. Follow us all week long on Facebook and Twitter for the latest LGBT news and information from here in the North Bay and beyond. For Gary Carnavelli, I'm Greg Moraglia.
0: OutBeat Radio News, your source for LGBT news from the North Bay and beyond.
1: Our guests tonight are the two amazing attorneys who led the dynamic legal team that fought Proposition 8 at the Supreme Court. Ted Olson and David Boyce have just published a book, Redeeming the Dream, and were featured in the HBO documentary, The Case Against 8. Ted Olson and David Boyce, welcome to Outbeat News In-Depth. Great, thank
2: you. Good to be here.
1: Well, I truly appreciate your time. Tell us, how did two such passionate lawyers with seemingly polar opposite political perspectives wind up working together for the one common vision of marriage equality?
2: Well, this is Ted Olson. I'll start first, but uh, it's been a true partnership right from the beginning. When I was first, but David and I both grew up in California. Um, We both felt the same way about uh, Proposition 8 when it was passed. Uh, We've talked about it subsequently. We weren't talking about it at at that very time, but... Subsequently, uh, when I was asked to consider the taking on the challenge to Proposition 8, I felt that it was very important because I do come from a conservative background and have been identified with conservative causes. It seemed to me important for this case to be handled by lawyers on both sides of the political spectrum, so people would not distracted by the identity of the lawyer handling the case or the lawyers handling the case and david and i talked about it david was very anxious to join um, immediately uh, the moment that i asked him uh and that that from the beginning we felt that was extremely important for us to project the message that this was a case about america It wasn't about conservative or liberal or republican or democrat we wanted the american people to focus on this case and the members of the judiciary that we expected to present it to to think about this case as the Bill of Rights, about equality, about the due process, about the American dream um, and fulfilling the American dream and redeeming the American dream for gay and lesbian citizens who had been denied the right by California to enter into marriage, uh, a fundamental right that's so important to so many citizens.
1: Mm-hmm. And I don't think most people appreciate how this all came together. I mean, you weren't hired by some existing civil rights organization like the HRC. This really emerged organically. Tell us more about
3: that. Sure. Uh, This is David. Uh, You had had an effort uh, going back for uh, decades in some senses to try to achieve uh, gender and sexual orientation equality and to extend that to really what is at the center of it, which is the right to marry. And what you would you had, had is in California, the California Supreme Court had ruled in 2008 that marriage was such a fundamental right that under the state constitution that it could not be uh, prohibited to gay and lesbian couples that everybody had a right to marry the person that they loved. And so for a, unfortunately, just brief period of time, people were free in California to marry the person that they loved. Then, also in 2008, in the November election, the voters of California, 52 to 48, passed a constitutional amendment uh, to the California Constitution that limited marriage to just a relationship between people of different sexes. Uh, That was, I think a lot of people believed, violative of the federal constitution. And our case was really designed to have a federal court say the federal constitution prohibits this kind of discrimination. And when the judge decided that uh, in 2010, it was the first time any court had ever decided that the federal constitution uh, protects marriage equality.
1: Right, right. So talk about the role that the American Foundation for Equal Rights played. That was a new organization that emerged as part of putting the Prop case together, right?
3: It, it, it was, and, 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 and Ted was really there at the, at the founding, because what, what happened is a group of very concerned uh, Californians Um, and and recognizing that the traditional organizations were reluctant to take the step of challenging Proposition 8 under the federal constitution. It was a new claim. It had had never been adjudicated in our favor before. Uh, People were were afraid that it was too fast, too far. Um, And so what happened is you had some concerned Californians get together and uh, they... Uh, reached out to Ted, and and Ted, you really ought to to pick it up, because you were right there when it happened.
2: Yes, it it was a number of people, including Rob Reiner, who everyone, I think, in America knows, the famous actor, director, Mm -hmm. producer, screenwriter, um, and his wife, Michelle, who felt that this was, when uh, when Proposition 8 was passed, this was something that they felt compelled to do something about. they wanted to help gay and lesbian citizens in California be restored to their status of equality. And, and uh, uh, David and I have great respect for Rob and Michelle Reiner because they put this together and they were determined to do something about it. They brought together other colleagues, um, uh, movie producer Bruce Cohen, uh, screenwriter Lance, uh, Dustin Lance Black and others, And we felt that it was important to put a community together to work on this case, not just lawyers representing clients, but a whole community of Californians and even beyond California, other citizens who would support the costs involved and to support the public relations effort that we wanted to put into this case to get people to understand what we were doing. And therefore, a foundation, a charitable foundation, a nonprofit foundation, Uh, called the American Foundation for Equal Rights, was established by these individuals, uh, and they helped finance the case, they helped publicize the case, they helped put the case together and carry it forward. And the American Foundation for Equal Rights, AFER, uh, is now supporting the challenge that David and I are participating in in Virginia to overturn the Virginia statutes that prohibit Uh, gays and lesbians from getting married and having their marriages recognized. Uh, We received a decision from the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit uh, that we won that case, that we had previously won. A district judge had declared the Virginia laws unconstitutional, and now a federal appeals court has affirmed that decision, which is such an important victory. And I mention it particularly at this point in our conversation because the American Foundation for Equal Rights same individuals that we've been talking about, Adam Umhofer, who's the executive director, have been supporting us in the Virginia case. And so this is another victory. It's another step forward in what David and I and many, many others have been working towards in this country, full marriage equality for all citizens in the United States.
1: Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, that was like the 31st consecutive ruling in favor of marriage equality, right?
2: Yes, I I actually lost count. David's been very good at keeping track of the number of decisions, but judge after judge after judge uh, in district uh, trial courts, the federal district court system, mm-hmm. and now the federal appellate court system, have come out the same way. There was a dissenting opinion in our case, as there was in the case involving Colorado and Oklahoma just a short while ago. But every court that has decided it has come out the same That's way, um, and it, it, it's something up in that number of consecutive judicial decisions. We've,
3: we've now had four federal appellate decisions, I believe, um, uh, two out of the Tenth Circuit, one out of the Ninth Circuit, uh, and now one out of the Fourth Circuit. Um, and each of those, uh, four federal uh, court of appeals decisions, uh, has ruled in favor of of striking down bans on marriage equality Mm -hmm. under the federal constitution.
1: Fantastic. And I definitely want to come back to the Virginia case a little bit later on the show. But back to the Prop 8 case. One of my favorite parts of the book is how uh, this lunch happened with Rob and Michelle Reiner. And that evolved into a discussion and bringing Ted in to possibly take on and create a federal case, a federal lawsuit. And once that organization was put together. Your next task was really finding plaintiffs. Uh, Talk about how you came up with the two couples that played such an important role in this
2: case. David, you want to take that one?
3: Sure. Um, uh, To to begin with, um, there were a lot of people in California who obviously wanted to get married. But to be a plaintiff in a case like this takes uh, some special people. It really takes people who are prepared to devote a considerable amount of their time over a period of years uh, to a cause. It requires people who are prepared to endure enormous scrutiny and enormous and sometimes very vile attacks. Uh, I don't know if you saw the HBO documentary on the uh, challenge to Proposition 8, but that documentary plays some of the messages that were left on the answering machines of um, uh, some of the plaintiffs, and it uh, shows some of the things that were yelled at them uh, as they went in and out of court. Uh, so we had to find people who not only wanted to get married, but who had the strength of character and the commitment to really follow through. And uh, uh, we talked to people, and people from F- AFER, um, American Foundation for Equal Rights, that we were talking about a moment ago, uh, talked to people and we finally um, arrived at the two couples that we had. And we, we were looking for people um, who obviously wanted to get married, but we were also looking for people who would be articulate, um, who uh, we were confident had a committed relationship so that they'd still be together um, uh, years into it when we were still uh, litigating it, uh, people of, of very uh, very strong uh, Convictions and character, so that they would stick through it, uh, including uh, the times when it was going to be difficult. And we could not have um, had two uh, better couples. Uh, anybody who has met them, anybody who has seen the HBO documentary, uh, anybody who's read our book, I think, has to realize what special people these four individuals are. Uh, the the love and commitment that they have for each other and the dedication they've had to trying to ensure that everyone uh, is able to marry the person they love. And they've accomplished that not only for themselves, but thus far for everybody in California. And I think that case has had an effect in many other states as well.
1: Sure. Well, we had Jeff Zarello and Paul Katami on our show earlier this year, and you could just tell from talking to them that they're very passionate about this subject, certainly because it impacted them individually, but but they've continued to be very outspoken about it, and they're still active today in promoting marriage equality.
3: They, they are, and as I say, I mean, these these are people who wanted to get married for themselves, but they also, for the entire community, wanted to... Establish marriage equality. They wanted to see everybody able to um, enjoy that right, and and they, of course, got it uh, faster in California um, than some of the other states. Um, but they've been absolutely determined to see everybody in this country uh, be able to enjoy that right.
1: Right, right. Well, from the very beginning of your strategic planning around how to put this case together, you talked about the importance of a public information or a public education campaign. Tell us more about how that came together and what role that it played.
3: That was absolutely critical. Um, uh, as Ted has said many times, we wanted to win this lawsuit, but when we won the lawsuit, we wanted everyone to accept that marriage equality was not only the law of the land; it was the right law of the land. We wanted everybody to accept people for whom they were, are, and and to not only. Uh, tolerate it, but embrace uh, equality. And so it, w- it was important for us to uh, speak to the broader court of public opinion, as well as the district uh, and appellate courts. And uh, Ted uh, uh, wrote a great uh, cover piece for Newsweek magazine in which he uh, talked about the conservative case for marriage quality. Uh, Ted, you may want to want to talk about that, because I think that that was a, a, a big step towards demonstrating to the country that this was not a conservative or, or liberal issue. It wasn't a Republican or Democratic issue. It was really an issue of human rights of civil rights.
2: What I wanted to do and what David wanted to do, and by the way, David led this off with, the, with a wonderful piece in the Wall Street Journal. Um, in, in a way, we, David reaching out to someone Uh, respected and known as um, a lawyer with liberal um, leanings and and a very big role in uh, liberal and democratic politics, reaching out to people in the Wall Street Journal, and then I wrote this piece about the conservative case for gay marriage. But what we were trying to do, as David said, is impact in some slight way, and you never can tell how much of an impact you're having, but we wanted... Our clients not only to receive their legal rights under the constitution but we wanted wherever they went for the american people to respect them and their right to get married so that this was not something where people would say i resent what you're 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 having the right to get married because a court gave it to you we wanted the american people to look around at gay and lesbian citizens everywhere And embrace them as their brothers and sisters and accord them full equality and because they're entitled to full equality and because they are a part of us they are a part of the community the idea that people should be treated differently and distinctly and put into boxes in this country based upon their sexual orientation is abhorrent to us but it, it was important to change public opinion because when we started this case or try to change public opinion we don't know how much of it we did how many 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 other people contributed to this but when we started this case people were rather substantially opposed to marriage equality today the american public is rather substantially in favor of it the job is not yet done but the atmosphere has changed and it's for the better and and it means that our clients and others like them are increasingly being accepted into society as being full partners in this wonderful community of America.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you both have talked about how marriage equality is really a basic civil rights issue, and it, and it is, in fact, the civil rights issue of our time. But in your presentation and in your arguments, you relied upon some fairly significant landmark cases that go back as far as school segregation. Talk about how you pulled concepts from those cases and how they apply to marriage equality.
2: Yes, and David, I'm going to want David to talk about this because David has given some really moving speeches about how important marriage was, but how much important marriage tied in with uh, school desegregation, uh, equality, the elimination of, seg- of separate but equal schools, but also the important interracial marriage case that David speaks so eloquently about this. I think that maybe he should address that. Sure.
3: In, um, in 1967... Uh, the United States Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional a Virginia uh, statute and constitutional provision that prohibited interracial marriage. Uh, I think it's interesting that it took the Supreme Court um, almost a decade and a half uh, after Brown against Board of Education that eliminated school desegregation to finally rule that laws prohibiting interracial marriage were unconstitutional. And what the court said there was it wasn't about uh, interracial marriage. It wasn't about uh, whether you were marrying somebody of the same race or of different races. It was about marriage, and that marriage was a fundamental right. And in um, Lawrence against Texas, the United States Supreme Court uh, struck down a Texas statute that criminalized certain gay and lesbian conduct. And... In that decision, the Supreme Court said that everyone, of every sexual orientation, is constitutionally entitled to affairs of intimacy and privacy and dignity. And you put those two cases together, and what it said to Ted and what it said to myself is that the constitutional protection of marriage is so fundamental that it cannot be limited based on race, based on religion, based on sexual orientation. And one of the things that was striking, I think, to both of us, and I don't think either one of us knew this when we started the case, but we brought in experts from all over the world to talk about marriage at the trial. And one of them explained about how when the slaves were freed, they rushed to get married because when they were slaves, They were prohibited from marrying because the slave owner wanted to control them and wanted to deprive them of having a family unit, and the security of a family unit. And when emancipation came, people rushed to get married, lined up to get married, because they wanted to validate their union and because they wanted the dignity and the recognition and the state sanction for their relationship and for their children. And if you think about the pain and the damage that has been done by depriving people of different races and different sexual orientations of the right to marry the person that you love, you understand why this has always been, in in Supreme Court jurisprudence, such a fundamental right, and why it is so important that we extend that right to everyone, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of sexual orientation.
1: Right, right. And tell us more about why it was so important for Judge Walker to hold an actual trial on marriage equality, as opposed to, say, just having a hearing uh, and a submission of briefs.
2: One of the remarkable things about this is that Judge Walker, right from the beginning, when this case was assigned to him the moment that it was filed in the federal district court in San Francisco, said that, I, I know that we could decide this on papers that people would submit, briefs and motions and things of that nature. Traditionally, sometimes these cases are decided that way. But he said, I think, I know this case is going to probably go to an appeals court, maybe even to the Supreme Court, and how we decide it may be more important than what we decide. He felt that it was extremely important to put this discrimination against gay and lesbian individuals in California on trial, and he wanted evidence from people who had experience and who'd studied the issues about the history of marriage, discrimination against gay and lesbians in this country, the impact of that discrimination on individuals uh, psychologically, uh, how it damaged them, um, the raising of children, uh, how, how... Children do in same sex households, the impact of same sex marriage on heterosexual marriage, all of those subjects that are important in considering and understanding discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, especially with respect to marriage, can be. And so Judge Walker said, I'm going to have a real trial, and each side is entitled to bring in experts or witnesses who can give me insight into these subjects, I think it was a remarkable decision, a mar- remarkably prescient decision, because for the first time, we had a full-blown trial. It took 13 days, and we had experts, as David said, from all over the world, people that that had studied these subjects and were the top people in their fields in, this ver- in the various areas, to talk about what these things meant, how much damage was done by discrimination against individuals on the basis of sexual orientation, uh, and all of those things. And so there was a trial there that the American people have access to as a result of David's book and my book, Redeeming the Dream, um, The Case Against Eight, the HBO documentary, which was released in June, uh, and and the record of the trial. And all of these subsequent decisions that we talked about earlier in this conversation, where other judges have looked at discriminatory laws about marriage equality, have relied in large part on what Judge Walker considered and decided in that case. There was a full evidentiary record with findings and conclusions that other judges have been able to look at and understand and rely on in rendering theirs decisions. So as you point out, it was a momentous decision that had great significance, and we we were thrilled to have the opportunity to put, as David has repeatedly said, put discrimination on trial and see what the outcome is.
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting that a California case, based on circumstances just in California, has become such an important foundational piece for decisions that have taken place since the Prop 8 case. Talk about the luck of the draw in getting Judge Vaughn Walker, uh, a gay man, to be the judge in this case. Do you think he would have had the same amount of perspective, interest, and examination of marriage equality from a straight judge?
3: I think we would have had the same result. I think Judge Walker was an exceptionally able trial judge, and I think the trial he conducted and the eloquent opinion that he wrote, uh, I think, were remarkable. But the thing to keep in mind is that, uh, first of all, uh, this was a Reagan appointee. It was an appointee that, um, uh, remarkably. Um, uh, Gay rights organizations strongly opposed his confirmation um, on the grounds that he was too conservative. Um, it was a nominee who was the chief judge of the federal district court in the Northern District of California, uh, widely respected. Uh, he was somebody who the defendant knew his sexual orientation um, and did not object to it until after the case the case was over. Um, it is well recognized uh, in the law that the fact that somebody shares characteristics with a plaintiff or defendant is not disqualifying. If it were, um, you couldn't have uh, African Americans uh, deciding uh, cases involving African American rights. You couldn't have women judges deciding cases involving uh, women rights. Uh, in fact, in a, in a case um, uh, like marriage equality, um, Every judge, unless, unless the person is a neuter, um, is uh, either a, a heterosexual uh, or a gay or lesbian, and, uh, and each has their own interests uh, in a particular case. So what you would do is you would, you would either essentially deprive um, uh, the ability of anybody to judge a case, or you would say only the majority, only whites can decide civil rights cases. Only men can decide sexual harassment cases. Only straight people can decide gay rights cases, and that would not only be absurd but it would be offensive uh, Mm -hmm. to 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 the Constitution. Uh, So I I, I think I think it's also I think it's also important to note that um, since Judge Walker's decision, um, there have been 13 or 14 district court judges around the country. That have faced the same question as to whether or not the federal constitution compels marriage equality. Every one of those judges, as far as I know, they're all straight. I don't know for sure, but probably the majority of them are straight, and I think maybe all of them are straight. They all came out the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all came out the same way uh, Judge Walker did. Uh, people appointed by three Republican presidents, two Democratic presidents, people in uh, Ohio and Oklahoma, Utah, Texas, all over the country. So this is this is not a, a question of whether you're Republican, a Democrat, somebody from the North or the South, whether you're gay or straight. This is a constitutional question about which I think there simply is a not two good
2: answers. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's also important that Judge Walker didn't seek out this case. Um, he was the chief judge of the federal district court in in san francisco the northern district of california and it's a lottery system when you come in and file a complaint the clerk punches the um appropriate buttons that a complaint has been filed and then um uh, at random um the judge's name pops out of the system and when judge walker first heard that he had been assigned this case he thought oh my gosh not me um, he, was, he, he was not, he, he, he realized the challenge that he was going to face, but he also realized as the chief judge and the judge assigned to the case, he couldn't walk away from the case. He was going to undertake his responsibility as a federal judge, and then he did conduct this trial, allowed this trial to take place, and then he explained his decision in 134 pages of detailed findings of fact and conclusions of law so that anybody who looks at that decision that he made can find, if they wanted to, areas that they might find to criticize or something like that. But the fact is that despite all of these decisions subsequently, no one has ever actually criticized or found any weakness in the decision that he rendered himself after all of that very, very careful consideration.
1: Well. Wow. Well, one of the issues that emerged almost immediately when the case began to make its way through the appellate process was the question of standing. You know, did the proponents of Proposition 8 have standing to even bring these appeals forward? And, of course, as we know, ultimately the Supreme Court said that they did not. Uh, what do you think this means for California's voter initiative process in the future?
2: Well, I'll, I'll talk about that a minute, and then David might. The, the, when we started with this case, the attorney general and the governor of California said, "Well, we see that there are constitutional deficiencies in it. We, in fact, agree that this this causes constitutional damage to our citizens, and we do not support Proposition 8. But as constitutional officers of the state, we will defend it. Um, um, we will we will enforce it until a court decides that it's unconstitutional." Uh, the judge. Judge Walker then decided to allow the proponents of Proposition 8 to intervene in the case at the trial, since there was a legitimate controversy, uh, because the the state was going to continue to enforce Proposition 8. And they were there during the trial. They put on the evidence that they thought was appropriate. And then there was a decision, uh, and then the state of California did not appeal, and the proponents of Proposition 8 did appeal. And they said they had the right to appeal, because they were the proponents uh, of Proposition 8, and therefore they had an interest. But the federal courts require participants in litigation, if they are the parties that, who have the responsibility to, to uh, advocate for a case or defend against a case, to have a specific, concrete, particularized interest in the outcome of the case, And the court of the United States Supreme Court ultimately held that proponents of a ballot proposition are no more than people that have no more of an interest in the outcome of the case than people who vote for it or wish that it would be passed. They haven't suffered any injury. In fact, during the trial, Judge Walker asked the lawyers for the proponents, what harm would it do to heterosexual marriage if gays and lesbians were allowed to get married in California, and he said, I don't know. Uh, He could not identify any particularized harm that heterosexual persons suffer in California. Uh, As a result of that, the Supreme Court upheld the decision uh, of Judge Walker and allowed it to stand, striking down Proposition 8. You asked what this will mean to individuals in California in the valid proposition context. There are vast numbers of these provisions that, as you know, in California, they've become, um, they're on the ballot every single time, and customarily the attorney general and the governor of the officials of the state of California go ahead and defend the ballot propositions, and there's not this type of an issue where they agree that it's unconstitutional. If that should happen again, there are ways in which the state of California could actually seek uh, the appointment of a particular individual to defend the statute so the situation that we had in this case is not likely to reoccur. The important thing is that after a full adversarial trial, Proposition 8 was struck down and the courts, the the appellate courts, decided not to disturb that decision.
0: Okay.
1: Well, let's shift gears a little bit and move on to your experience uh, at the Supreme Court with Proposition 8. I mean, you two are both veterans of that court. You've, you've been there for some very, very major and significant cases. Talk about how this one was different.
3: Well, for one, for one thing, uh, this time we were on the same side, which I can, <laughs> which I can tell you, uh, uh, from my perspective, uh, was a great benefit.
2: So this, and, the, and, and David is kidding, of course, but it, the fact is that right from the beginning, I think, that we felt if we could combine our skills and our experience and the dedicated and talented people in our law firms, that we could present a relatively formidable force in the Supreme Court. But I think the real import of your question, and David and I feel the same way about this, and anyone who does read our book, Uh, or did watch the case against eight the hbo documentary will know that we were dealing with with four specific individuals who represented a broad spectrum of society gays and lesbians who've been victims of discrimination they told their story in such a compelling way that it is emotionally uh, overwhelming uh and to david and to me Uh, The fact that we were in the Supreme Court and we had the responsibility to represent these individuals and people throughout America who have been the victims of historic discrimination uh, by their governments, that we had the responsibility to present their case uh, with all of its intellectual force and emotional force was a great burden, a great responsibility, and a great privilege for us. Um, And it affected us personally very, very deeply. And our wives, David's wife Mary and my wife Lady, uh, were part of our team right from the beginning. We felt emotionally connected with this case in, in a way in which, David and I have talked about this, that no other case we've ever handled before or ever will handle in the future is likely to Equal. Uh, it was an a, a emotional responsibility, but one that we felt very, very honored and privileged to be able to participate in.
1: Yeah, I, I think you can really tell very clearly from both reading the book and watching uh, The Case Against Date, the documentary, that your passion for this issue really grew uh, over the years that you were involved in the case.
2: We learned so much about ourselves and our fellow citizens our nation's history, uh, and the impact of discrimination, not just discrimination against gays and lesbians, but discrimination against individual minorities, races, uh, gender discrimination, discrimination against people who suffer handicaps um, or disabilities. um, The effect of discrimination and the failure from time to time of this country to live up to its wonderful noble ideals um, has an enormous impact on the individuals affected. And I think those of us fortunate enough not to have been victim of that victims of that kind of discrimination sometimes overlook uh, the many ways in which discrimination can be damaging and the ways in which we all need to strive to be better citizens and to be um, more uh, consistent with the ideals of this country. I think that was an enormous learning process and a great, greatly gratifying experience. One of the reasons why David and I felt that it was important to write this book is that we wanted to tell the story of how we got involved in this case, why we became involved in this case, what we learned about this case, how we decided to put the case together, how we decided to present it, but how we grew as individuals and how much we learned about ourselves and our country, we wanted to impart that to people who would be willing to buy and, and read the book. Uh, and we called it Redeeming the Dream, because the dream of individuals in this country, whether they be gay or lesbians, or people who are immigrants, or people who are of minority races, the dream of people that come to America is the dream <laughs> that you see depicted in the Statue of Liberty. It's the dream that's reflected in... Um Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and it's the dream that's reflected in Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, and that is the dream that we all share as Americans, and that's why we called our book Redeeming the Dream, because we wanted to present the story of our effort to redeem the dream of gay and lesbian citizens to be treated equally with respect to their right to mm-hmm. get married in the United States.
1: Right, right. Well, as you think back on the Supreme Court hearing that day, uh, there were a lot of very interesting exchanges between the justices and, and both sides. For you, which ones were the most memorable or most significant to the case?
2: David, maybe you can maybe you can uh, answer that question, because right. I'm not sure I remember <laughs> anything that happened that day. <laughs> right.
3: Well, I, I think there were a lot of, lot of very memorable moments. I think one of, one of the most memorable moments for me was when the, um, Justice Scalia asked, "Well, when did it become unconstitutional uh to prohibit um, uh, marriage equality?" And, and and Ted replied, "Uh uh when did it become unconstitutional to prohibit um, uh interracial marriage uh or to prohibit uh children of different races from going to the same schools?" And I think both of both 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 of those answers reflected the fact that uh, The Constitution is a constantly evolving, as Justice Kennedy says, a document, as we recognize that practices and beliefs that we've had in the past um, were discriminatory. And the progress of this country has been, for two centuries, a progress of extending the promises of our Constitution, the promises of equality and liberty and dignity, uh, to more and, and more people. Uh, when this country started, the phrase "We the People," with which our Constitution begins, really meant white male, largely Christian, property owners. Um, and over over time, we've broken down barriers of gender, bar- barriers of religion, barriers of race, and now barriers of sexual orientation, so that every citizen can can enjoy those can enjoy those freedoms.
1: Oh, yes. I remember that exchange quite well. And we have it right here. Here's Justice Scalia in that exchange with Ted Olson.
3: So you've led me
4: right into a question I was going to ask. Uh, the California Supreme Court decides what the law is. That's what we decide, right? We don't prescribe law for the future. We, dis- we decide what the law is. I- I'm curious, when, when, did, when did it become unconstitutional to exclude uh, homosexual couples from marriage? 1791, uh, uh, 1868, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, Sometimes, sometime after Baker, where we said it didn't even raise a substantial federal question,
5: when 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 did the law become this? I, I may answer this in the form of a rhetorical question. When did it become unconstitutional to prohibit interracial marriages? When did it become unconstitutional to assign children to? Separate Easy question. Schools?
4: I think for that one, uh, at the time that uh, that uh, the uh, discrimin- equal protection clause was adopted, that's absolutely true. don't give me a a question to my question.
5: When do you think it became unconstitutional? Has it always been unconstitutional? When — when the California Supreme Court faced the decision, which it had never faced before, is — does excluding gay and lesbian citizens who are a class based upon their status as homosexuals, is it — is it constitutional?
4: That's not when it became unconstitutional. That's when they acted. In an unconstitutional matter, in an unconstitutional manner. When did it become unconstitutional to prohibit gays from marrying?
5: Then they did not assign a date to Justice Scalia, as you know. Uh, What the court decided was a case that came before. I'm not talking about about the California
4: Supreme Court. I'm talking about your argument. You say it is now unconstitutional. Yes.
5: Was it always unconstitutional? It was constitutional when we, as a culture, determined that sexual orientation is a characteristic of individuals that they cannot control. I see. And when that did that happen? When did that there's happen? There's no specific date in time. This is an evidence. How am I supposed to know how to decide a case? Because then? the case that you You can't before give me you, a date when the, the Constitution case that's before changes. before you today. California decided. At the citizens of California decided, after the California Supreme Court decided that individuals had a right to get married, irrespective of their sexual orientation, in California, and then the Californians decided in Proposition 8, wait a minute, we don't want those people to so, be able to get so married. Your so case, your case
4: would be different if Proposition 8...
5: I think another,
3: another really memorable moment was when Justice Kennedy... Um, I asked uh, our opponent, uh, who who was arguing in defense of Proposition 8, uh, what about the children? Um, What about the children that are being raised by gay and lesbian couples? Shouldn't they have a voice? And I think that reflected the fact that the trial had made clear that when you deprive a couple of the right to marry, you seriously harm them, but you also seriously harm the children that they're raising. The dignity, the security, the acceptance that comes from having the couple that is raising you married is terribly important to children. And I think that the Justice Kennedy's uh, question was a terribly apt one because uh, you know what it said is, what about these innocent children? Why should they have to uh, suffer?
1: Well, right. And, and of course, children, the issue of children, was at the very heart of the pro-Proposition 8 argument that somehow marriage equality would pose a threat to children. Here's that exchange between Justice Kennedy and Mr. Cooper.
5: On the other hand, there is an immediate legal injury or legal, uh, what could be a legal injury, And that's the voice of these children. There are some 40,000 children in California, according to the Red Brief, uh, that live uh, with same-sex parents. And they want their parents to have full recognition and full status. The voice of those children is important in this case, don't you think?
3: Your Honor, I certainly would not dispute the importance of that consideration, that consideration especially— in the political process where this issue is being debated and will continue to be debated certainly in California is being debated elsewhere. But, but on that specific question, uh, Your Honor, uh, there, there simply is no uh, data, in fact, their expert agreed there is no data, no study even, that would examine whether or not there is any incremental beneficial effect from marriage over and above the uh, domestic partnership uh, laws that were enacted by the state of California to recognize, support, and honor same-sex relationships and their families.
1: Yeah, the whole idea that somehow marriage equality poses a threat to children and that whole strategy for justifying problems really irritated me.
3: That, that was one of the really, you know, outrageous um, and, and really anomalous um, uh, parts of the argument, uh, you know, when they they argued that Proposition Eight was, somehow would protect our children, uh, there was absolutely no evidence, and it was it was it was crude, um, it was baseless, uh, and it was uh, a uh, really a, a distortion of of what our both democratic and judicial process should be about. All of the evidence was the permitting marriage equality helps children, doesn't hurt children.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Paul Katami uh, said this, and, and uh, he was quoted in, the, or his, he, he was quoted, uh, depicted saying this in, in the Case Against 8, the HBO documentary. Um, the message that the state of California needed to protect its citizens or its children from gay and lesbian individuals was so damning so hurtful. Uh, here's, a, here's an individual and uh, the person that he hoped to marry uh, loved children, were a part of their nephews and nieces and other members of their families with their children. And then the state of California is saying, and it's saying in its constitution, you people of California need to be protected from knowing about gay people or learning about them or allowing them to get married because somehow they will hurt your children. What a terrible, terrible, um, despicable message to pass on to our citizens. And you can see how prejudice is uh, perpetuated uh, because of messages like that. But you can also see how harmful it is if you're the person that they say must be protected from association with children. It's
1: devastating. Oh, absolutely it is. Uh, well, this last summer, you both had the chance to officiate, co-officiate a wedding ceremony for Paul Katami and Jeff Zirillo. Talk about what that experience was like for you.
3: It was it was an enormously moving experience to to be able to uh, officiate at the celebration of their of their wedding. Um, uh, they were surrounded by family and friends, uh, and people who come from all over the country. Uh, And it was an extremely uh, moving, loving uh, ceremony. And it really reflected what this fight is about. It's really about allowing people to be people, to allowing everybody to be part of a family, to enjoy the security, the dignity, the liberty, and the happiness uh, that belonging to a loving family uh, brings about and it was it was great uh, it was great to see them, and it was a privilege uh, for us to be able to to participate in that
1: oh that's great, really, really great so let 's get back to the Virginia case uh, of all of the different cases that are out there and pending. why did you choose that one? Why was the Virginia case so important? Well,
2: this was a case. Um that was already, uh, and it had already been initiated by some very, very fine lawyers in Virginia on behalf of, uh, of wonderful individuals. Um, they, and they contacted us and asked us and the American Foundation for Equal Rights whether or not David and I might be available to be partners with them in the prosecution of this case. They knew the experience that we would had with Proposition 8. They were lawyers that were very, very fine lawyers and could easily have handled the case on their, on their own, in their own right. Um, but they also wanted to take advantage of the experience that David and I had and, and the, um, the visibility that we had, because that helps attract attention to the case, and the more attention that you get to the case, the more people understand the justness of the case that's being brought. Uh, David and I talked about it, but it didn't take very long. We agreed that in the first place, uh, these claims were wonderful people. We wanted to help them uh, in the same way we, we had helped the people in California. The second thing that was so important to us is Virginia's status in the United States. Virginia is the home, in many respects, of the Declaration of Independence the home of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, um, uh, James Madison. Uh, it is the founder of the birthplace of our country in so many respects. It is also the state of Loving versus Virginia, the case that David spoke about before, the, where the Supreme Court struck down bans on interracial marriage. Uh, and, and, so it, 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 and so in many respects it seemed particularly appalling a particularly disappointing in America for the state of the Commonwealth of Virginia, the wonderful Commonwealth of Virginia, which is such a beautiful place and with such memorable histories, but which was a part of the Confederacy. Um, And that is the place where, if we are going to eliminate discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, that we're going to deny individuals' marriage equality, that is a place where it is so important. To overcome those kind of barriers.
1: Right, right. So let's look ahead. We've got, you know, 30 plus positive affirming decisions for marriage equality. Do you think the Supreme Court will take up one or more of these cases and make a decision about marriage equality once and for all? Or do you think they're just going to kind of let it happen piecemeal one decision at a time?
3: I think it's always uh, difficult to predict uh, what the Supreme Court will do. But I think the Supreme Court uh recognizes that this is a case uh that it is going to have to decide um, whether it is this coming term which if i had to guess i would i I would guess it it might well be or a uh, later term uh this is a case that will eventually uh go to the supreme court you now have three pending uh, court of appeals decisions uh two out of uh, the 10th circuit and one out of the 4th circuit that um uh, applications for a review will be made to the supreme court on and so i think the supreme court could uh, could take uh, anyone or some combination of those now all of those cases have come out the same way and um, there would be more predictability i think on the supreme court taking it if there had been a, a divergence but i think even with the courts coming out the same way I think uh, the court may very well feel that it is now time to uh, resolve this uh, for the entire country.
2: It seems uh, so important that, irrespective of the fact that a number of federal courts have come out the same way, there are still many, many states in which individuals are being denied the rights of equality, Privacy, decency, respect, due process, and access to marriage, and that individuals throughout the United States may individuals that get married in a state like California, where it's now legal to get married to someone of the same sex, may move to a state where it's no longer where it is not legal to be married. Will their will their marriage be recognized? What are the rights of their children in that state, and so forth? There are so many legal questions. It's just wrong to have a patchwork of laws with respect to marriage equality throughout the United States. And we're hopeful that the United States Supreme Court will see this is just not tolerable. There needs to be one answer, one solution, one respect for marriage equality and the dignity of gay and lesbian citizens throughout the United States, it will be such a great step forward for America when we get to that point. We believe that the United States Supreme Court will understand the importance of a decision that is uniform throughout the United States.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Well, amen to that. Their book is called Redeeming the Dream, and we've been talking with attorneys Ted Olson and David Boyce. Thank you both so much for your dedication and your hard work to making LGBT civil rights in this country a reality.
2: Thank Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so so much for giving us the opportunity to talk with you about it.
1: And that brings us to the end of our hour. I'll be back next week with a special Outbeat Extra, so be sure to tune in at 8 p.m. next Sunday, only here on KRCB Radio. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Outbeat News in Depth is hosted and produced by Greg Moralia, exclusively for KRCB Radio. You can listen to our shows on demand on iTunes and on our website at OutBeatNews.com. And be sure to follow us all week long on our Facebook page and Twitter feed for the latest LGBT news from here in the North Bay and beyond.